0: Well, good morning. I am so honored to be able to uh, speak to you this morning. But before I get to the message, um, with all the recent events that have happened this last week, uh, Jason actually asked me to read you a message from him uh, for you. Um, As the pastor of your church, he wanted to make sure that um, you understood uh, how we and he feels about what has happened in this recent week. So let me read this letter. As I think about the events of this week, like you, my heart is flooded with sadness, confusion, and anger. I have questions for God, questions for the police officers who take life unjustly, and those who retaliate violence with violence. This week has been a reminder for me of just how much the human heart needs the hope of Jesus. I'm reminded of John 16:33. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When I see videos of shootings and riots, I need this verse to calm me and remind me that no matter how out of control the world seems, God is always in control. And he has overcome the chaos of the world that seems to be spinning out of control. I want to reaffirm that Hope City Church is 100% against any form of racism or bigotry towards any minority. There is no place in our church for anyone who degrades individuals because of the color of their skin. While I'm sure we haven't been perfect, in the 12 years I have served this church, you have modeled the love of Christ to everyone who has walked through those doors. I want to reaffirm that Hope City Church supports and appreciates the service of all our men and women who serve our country on the police force. Like many of you, I have friends who give themselves every day to serve and protect, and they are as offended at the acts of a few as we are. When the world seems the darkest, that is the opportunity for the light of Christ's church to shine the brightest. In the last few days, if you have chosen a side in the culture wars and debates, you have chosen the wrong side. Like the story in Joshua chapter 5, God doesn't need us to use his name to win a battle or an argument. What he asks of us and what the world needs is not more opinions. They need to see the church of Jesus Christ model what it looks like, when people of all different races, incomes, and past worship and love together. When we want to argue or feel the need to rant, let us remember the only difference between us and someone whose heart is filled with hate is the grace of God. As your pastor, I am asking you to stand with me in support of the African American community as they search for answers and equality in our country. As a white middle-class man, any attempt I could make to speak on their behalf would be silly. Hope City Church is not as diverse as we need to be, but God is helping us, and in time, we will better reflect our community and heaven. I believe the best thing we can do right now is pray for each other, our community, and our nation. There is no problem prayer can't solve, and there is no heart the hope of Jesus cannot change. Okay, so I don't know how many of you guys were here about a month ago, but we had something called Five for Five, And five of us preached a five-minute message, and it was a lot of fun. We had like a timer, and we had an air horn that told us when our time was up, and we had a good time with it. And when Jason asked me to do that, we were talking about it like back in April. And so I was like, oh, yeah, and I've been thinking about something, and I know what I think I want to talk about, and I, I got it all worked out. And so by the time that Sunday came, I was like, I was ready. I had it memorized. I was ready to go. And it was only five minutes. So I was like, that's easy to do. Also in June, I was getting ready to be gone for about two weeks. So all of June, I was prepping. Like I said, I'm the children's pastor, so I was getting all the kids' stuff ready for July when I was going to be gone. And when I came back, I wanted everything to be ready, you know, so I wouldn't have any stress or pressure on vacation. So two weeks ago on Monday, I am in the airport getting ready to go on vacation with my family, and I got a text from Jason. And he texts, hey, would you like to preach on July 10th? I'm like, what? I said, I thought you already had that scheduled. I thought you were going to be. No, we've decided we're going to take the whole family, go to Atlanta. You know, I just wanted to offer it to you first. I think it would not be good for you to do it. Don't you hate when somebody says that to you? It's like, Ugh, I hate it when you say it would be good for me. Um, but I, I, I felt the same way. And my feeling was, yeah, I feel like I should do it. But the other part of me is like kind of throwing up in my mouth. Like, I, I don't think I want to, you know. So, and then I said, so Jason, I'm going on vacation. I'm not going to get back till July 5th. He's like, oh, you got five days. So I thought, oh, but I I agreed, and I did it. Um, So what I'm actually going to do today is I'm actually going to tell you a story. Um, Some of you may already know this, but uh, my dad was diagnosed about a year ago from now uh, with stage four terminal lung cancer. And in order for me to tell you the story, I kind of need to give you a little background about my dad. So my dad's name is Jean Shagney. So that was my main name for 22 years, Chagny. I think they're actually going to put it up there because it doesn't look anything like it sounds. Um, and so I grew up with two, knowing two things about my last name. One was that it was actually uh, a French name. It was pronounced Shagene. And when the Germans invaded France in World War I, the pronunciation was changed to sound German, and, it was, and they never went back. The second thing I was told is that the name came over with two lines of families, my great-great-grandfather and his brother. So if you ever, I was told, whenever you run into a Shagney in the United States, they're your immediate relative, so be nice to them because you're related to them. So those are the two things. But the name was always very strange. We always struggled with it getting pronounced right. And that kind of plays a role in the story later, so I just wanted you to tell, it, tell you that part. So my dad was born in 1934, in the West End of Louisville during the Depression. He was the oldest of five boys. He was born in a shotgun house, which is like, if you've ever seen a shotgun, it's living room, bedroom, bathroom, kitchen. That's it. So the five brothers slept in the screened-in porch in the back of the house. They grew up poor. Uh, He tells stories all the time about not having any shoes. Uh, But my dad was very smart, and he was very resilient, and he liked to learn things. And so he would tell stories about when he was like 12 or 13, when you walk around downtown, when you walk around West End Louisville, there were a lot of pool halls, uh, billiards. And kids could go, boys could go into the pool halls. And so my dad decided he wanted to learn how to play pool. Because if you were 15, you could play in the tournaments. So my dad became a pool shark. He was actually really good at it. And it's because he understood angles. So he decided he was going to become a pool shark, and he did. The other thing he decided to do when he was 15 is he decided he wanted to learn how to play tennis because he saw it in a movie. So he walked down to Shawnee Park, found the tennis instructor, found a racket, and he started learning tennis. And so as he got older, in his 20s, he uh, enlisted in the Air Force. And this was during a peacetime, So he was stationed over in Germany. So for five years, he's stationed in Germany. There's not a lot going on. So he participates in what was called the European Air Force Tennis Tournament. It was a tournament that drew from all the Air Force bases in Europe, and they sent players to participate in this tournament. My dad went every year, and he actually won the whole thing. Very, he was an amazing tennis player. So that was in his 20s. He came back home, and when he came home, it just so happened that my mom, who he would marry, had moved in next door with her grandmother. So my great-grandmother lived next door to my dad's parents, and that's how he met my mom, and they got married. So growing up, I'd always heard my dad was like a genius, like he literally had a genius IQ. And he loved science, history, uh, science fiction, art. He actually taught himself how to paint, paint portraits. He's a a big painter. He read all the time. He watched every obscure PBS KET show there was. If it was on, he watched it. And he was also called a health nut. Back in that time, they called him a health nut because he talked about things that people thought were crazy. But today, it's actually true. He lived as if the food he ate, he became the food he ate. So he understood that food can be medicinal for you. What you eat makes you healthier, makes you sick. He knew that way back then. Um, So um, the other word that was thrown around about my dad is that he was kind of quirky. And I think the word kind of referred to, he was a little bit socially awkward, maybe because he was so smart, and he was uncomfortable in certain social situations. Now, I have a younger sister, and she's six. And so my mom and my sister and I would go to our relatives every Sunday. So it was my mom's mom. It was my grandmother's. And see all my aunts and uncles and cousins. My dad never went. And actually, any time that we did go anywhere as a family, he hardly ever went with us. When I got older, I got really involved in music and band when I was in high school and in college. And um, I was a drum major. I was the person that conducted. And so that that set me up to be, um, I, I could win awards or recognition for that, but my dad never came to see me. And uh, in college, I kind of got used to it. It kind of was, this is how it is. Um, when I was in college, my senior year, the very last home game, which was going to be my last performance as a drum major, this was at UK, it was a really big deal. Um, they, yeah, Thank you. Um, they, Sorry, sorry you though. Um, They actually would announce my name over the intercom, and it was always fun. We always had a bet amongst ourselves that they would say it right, because it was that weird name. Um, So I get a call from my dad on that last Saturday, my very last performance. Um, It's like two hours before the game starts, and he's like, hey, I'm going to come up and see you. Can you get me a ticket? And I'm just like, really? I'm like, seriously, like, this is when you decide to do this. So I found him a ticket, and I, like, met him at the gate, and I was like, Dad, I got to go. I got to perform. And he's like, okay, and... He came in to see me, and then he left. I never even talked to him after that. It was very strange, and it was very frustrating. That was kind of the relationship with my dad. So not too long after Greg and I got married, um, my mom actually divorced my dad. And it was really one of those things where you think, well, you're just sort of putting a stamp on what was already there because they didn't have a very good relationship. Um, it, It wasn't abusive in any way. He just wasn't available. Like he was physically there, but he just really wasn't there. Uh, And so that was really the only way I was seeing my dad, is when I would go see my mom. And so now they were getting divorced and they were living apart. And so now there wasn't even an opportunity unless I made it to go see my dad. So we started a family, Um, I kind of accepted the way it was, Um, and it wasn't really even estranged. I was okay with it, I guess. I felt like I was. I wasn't even mad anymore. It's just the way it was. And he would choose the times when we would connect. Like out of the blue, he would just show up at the house. and he would usually bring me something. like I said, he was a knowledge person. So he would bring me magazines or he would print outs from the internet, and you know, here's things you need to eat. You know to be healthy, stuff like that. Things I needed to know. We would invite him to Christmas uh, our kids the kids' birthday parties. Um, he would always come early. He would come into the house, he would be there for like 10 minutes, and then he would leave. Um, He would avoid being around people in the party itself. And my dad was like a bundle of energy. Like, I mean, he was always moving. He was in great shape. Like I said, he took really good care of himself, and he looked way younger than his age. I would go months months at a time without seeing him, and then he would just call out of the blue. And I actually got, the last couple years, I got to get a little perturbed with it, because he would always call at the worst time. I would either be going out or I would have to go do something. And he would call and say, hey, I'm coming. I'll be there in 30 minutes. And of course, an hour and a half later, he's still not there. And so that's kind of the way it was with my dad. And I remember thinking, you know, this is not a healthy situation, but I really don't want to do anything about it. But my dad isn't getting any younger. And the thought was, this relationship is going to have to be fixed before my dad dies. I just, I know that. Instinctively, I know that. But I wasn't doing anything about it. The thing that I didn't realize about my dad when I was a kid, quirky, health nut, that I discovered as an adult was that his his quirkiness was a nice way of saying he had some mental issues. My dad was obsessive-compulsive, specifically about health. He was a germaphobe. He was a hypochondriac. He had a lot of anxiety. He hated going to the doctor, But at the same time, he was always so worried about having something that he would go to the doctor to try to find out what it was. He was terrified of going in the hospital because he thought once he went in, he would never come back out. And his biggest fear, his mortal fear, the thing that drove him to study, to learn, to eat right, to exercise, was a fear of getting cancer. So a year ago in May, I got a call from my sister. Um, She asked if I'd talk to my dad. And I honestly, I couldn't even tell her when I had talked to him last, or seen him. I know I hadn't seen him in two or three months. I said, I might have talked to him on the phone. He, you know, he may have sounded a little old. I mean, he was starting to get old. My dad was 80 a year ago. He's, he's, he's going to be 81. He's going to be 82 soon. So he was 80 at the time, and, and he would always say, well, I'm just getting old. So she said, no, there's something wrong. Like, I went to see him, and there's, there, there's something wrong. And he fell and hit his head. And so I said, OK, well, I'll, I'll go by and see him. I'll, I'll get over there to see him. Um, so I went by to see him. And there clearly was something wrong. Like he, did, he looked like an old man. And my dad had never looked like an old man. And so I asked him, I said, Dad, you know, you hit your head. Are you OK? And he's like, oh, I'm fine. And he was cracking jokes. He was still his normal self. He just didn't look like it. And so he wouldn't even consider going to the doctor any, and he kind of convinced me he was OK. And in my mind, I was probably thinking, I don't want to deal with it, honestly. Um, so my sister and I were in the awkward position of, because we didn't have a relationship with our dad, we hadn't developed an adult relationship with him, there was, there was, it was difficult to flip the script and become, some, to care for him, because he wasn't going to let us do it. And because my parents had gotten divorced, my sister and I were all he had. Actually, most of his brothers had passed away. He was the only one left except for his younger brother who was living in another state. So we decided, um, we heard a week later that he ran his car off the road. He wasn't hurt, but he had veered off the road. So we were like, okay, we need to intervene. And I remember thinking, I just remember thinking, God, I know this relationship has to be restored, but this is not the way I want to do it. But I know this is how you work but I have no idea how I'm gonna be able to do this because I can barely be around him for an hour before he drives me crazy. Like how in the world am I supposed to do this? And immediately, a thought in my head and in my heart, these words came to mind. God said, I will guide you and I need you to remember these three things. Remember who he is, remember what matters to him most, And honor and respect him. So this was on Sunday, June 7th. And I called the doctor and I told him what was going on. They said, yes, you need to get him in. And so I called my sister. I said, let's meet at dad's house. So we met at dad's house. And we immediately fell sort of into this um, rhythm of trying to convince him that he needs to go to the hospital. We knew he would fight us. We knew he would resist to go. He had clearly gotten worse. Actually, the left side of his face was drooping. And so we're thinking stroke. He's had a stroke. So, but I focused on the three things. So the first thing is, remember who he is. My dad was, is a very intelligent man, and you can't pull anything over on him. So I had to approach him from a very reasonable position, and I basically had to sh- remind him, Dad, you know what the symptoms are for a stroke. You know what it looks like. This is what we're seeing. He's like, yeah, I do. I said, well, Dad, that's what we're seeing. And he's like, yeah, And he actually was like, yeah, and then he he cussed a little bit because he puts curse words in his statements every once in a while. So when he gets frustrated, a few cuss words came out. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Second thing, remember what matters to him most. Knowledge is the most important thing to him. Regardless of what the knowledge is, even if it's negative, he wants to know what the truth is. And so I told him, I said, Dad, the only way you're going to find that out is if we take you to the hospital. Like, you have to go to the hospital so we can figure out what's going on. And he was like, yeah, you're right. And then we honored and respected him. He had to make the decision to go. We didn't talk down to him. We didn't talk to him like he was a child. We had to give him a minute to process and then pray that he was going to make the decision to go, and he did. So we took him to the hospital. And um, I told you in the beginning he was diagnosed with stage 4 terminal uh, lung cancer. The only reason we found it is because when they did the MRI that night, they found a tumor on his brain. It had metastasized to his brain, and that was causing the symptoms we were seeing. He wasn't seeing any symptoms from the lung cancer itself. Um, And that was the beginning of a year-long journey getting to know my dad again. For my sister and I, we went from not knowing anything about how he lived his life to knowing what he ate Uh, what his symptoms were, previous procedures that he had, the medications he was taking, the doctors, the list of doctors, taking him to his appointments. That was mainly my job. And in the beginning, there was the tumor and the surgery. We tackled that first. The lung cancer was a little bit more difficult because of his age and because of where it was and how big it was. But amazingly, um, they're making so many new discoveries every day in cancer treatment. It just so happens that right when we ran out of options for my dad's lung cancer, a new drug was brought fully onto the market. It's an immunotherapy drug. And he took it and it's working. So my dad is actually living uh, with terminal lung cancer with very few side effects. I have probably spent more time with my dad in the last year than I did my entire adult life. We've had um, honest conversations about death and dying, about the afterlife, about scientific discoveries, about his childhood, and we have laughed. I think my sister and I have laughed more than we cried. And, and just to give you a few examples of my dad's sort of twisted sense of humor, so I mentioned his name earlier. When we took him into the hospital that first, that first day, what they ask you every time they walk into the room, every doctor that walks into the room, they're going to ask you your name and your birthday. So we go into the hospital, and I ask my dad, he's in a wheelchair, and I ask him, they said, sir, what's your name? And he says, Gene Shagin." And my sister and I looked at each other, and we were like, oh my gosh, he's really had a stroke, like he doesn't even remember his name. And we're like, i I'm, I'm sorry, it's Gene Shagney. And my dad was like, oh no, I am changing it back to the original pronunciation because it sounds better with my name, Gene Shagene. And it's easier to remember. So we just laughed, and then every time we walked, like a doctor walked into the room asking his name, we would just crack up laughing. They didn't know what we were laughing about. The other thing he had a tendency to do is anytime we took him to do radiology, so a CT scan, an MRI, an X-ray, he would ask the radiologist, I'm not kidding, he was serious, he was like, so how many of these can I really have before it causes cancer? I'm like, I said, Dad, you're, you're off the hook. You already have cancer. I know, but I don't want to get another kind of cancer. And then we were going through his paperwork, and I, I, I was going, he had already made out his will and made me his executor like a long time ago. And I was slipping through his stuff, and I told my sister, I said, he bought a burial plot, but he also signed paperwork to donate his body to, UofL Science, to U of L, to the University of Louisville. So I said, Dad, I said, you know, you got a burial plot, and then you signed, I know, I just want to keep all my options open. <laughs> uh, so all those hours and hours with my dad walking him through his obsessive fears about medications and procedures not one time did I get did I lose my patience or did I get overwhelmed or did I feel burdened it has been and it continues to be an honor for me and for my sister to care for him that's completely and utterly due to God's divine wisdom and grace to the guidance and the leading of the Holy Spirit. I, I, hesitate to, I, I, mean, I hesitate to say this, that I'm glad my dad got cancer because it doesn't belong to me. Like, that's for him to say. Um, and it feels a little selfish. But I have no doubt, I have no doubt that God answers our prayers in ways that are unexpected and even unwished for. And I truly believe what Paul tells us in Romans 8, In 26 and 28, they're actually going to throw this up on the screen for you. Let me read it to you. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves, knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. That is why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. This story is not a story about surviving cancer. My dad's cancer is terminal, and he will probably die from it eventually if he doesn't die from something else because he's in his 80s. Greg and I actually have a friend. It's, Greg's, it's Greg his childhood friend that he went through school and through college with. His dad is in the hospital with cancer taking the same kind of drugs my dad is, and it is not working, and it is not going to be a happy ending for them. And I know it's going to get really difficult with my dad. But this story is about relationships and the power that God provides to restore. What I've gained from this and what I've learned is that God is relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it is a perfect relationship because He is perfect. And what makes it perfect is not just because of who He is, but because he knows that the perfect relationship is built in several things. It's built in time spent, it's built in openness, and honesty, and surrender. I would bet that if you have an earthly relationship that is life-giving for you, I would guarantee that that relationship, you have poured into it, and you have spent time, you have been open, you have been honest, and you have surrendered to it. That's what our Father wants for us. He wants that for us with him and with each other. And for you, um, for me, what I have learned and for what I know that you can learn is when you spend time getting to know who God is and who he says he is, then you can build that perfect relationship with him him as well. And like I did, because I believe that's how I was able to do this you can draw power from that to restore your earthly relationships, which is what happened to me. I absolutely believe that what made reclaiming the relationship with my dad possible and easier than I expected was because of the choice I made to invest in the relationship with God the Father. As the verse in Roman 8 says again, he knows us better than we know ourselves and what is best for us. And he has taken every detail of my life my dad's life including his cancer and worked it into something good a restored relationship now maybe you are in the same place maybe you are an adult who is a, who is caring for an adult parent or you see it coming down the road and it's terrifying or maybe you have a broken relationship with a spouse or with a child or with a sibling or with a family member or even with a friend it's it's difficult I have no doubt it's difficult, but God has created us to be in relationship and to reflect his perfect relationships. And as we talk about over and over again here at Hope City, our hope comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that in turn can bring life, restoration, and redemption to our relationships. Now I work under the assumption that all of us have dysfunctional relationships because we are human and we're not perfect. And so I am assuming that everyone in this room probably has a relationship that could use restoration. So I just want to ask you right now, like if you are specifically thinking about a relationship that you want restored, I just want you to raise your hand. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. Okay, so I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to pray specifically for those of you that are asking for restoration. But it comes from a relationship with your Father. That's where restoration can come. Let me pray.